This is J.G. Hertz, the General Mar Talker on Deep Space Nine, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to Season 7, Episode 10 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm John. And today we are beginning a new series, this one on J.J. Abrams. Now you may say, hey, you guys did a series on J.J. Abrams already, right? Yes, and they would be outraged, and rightly so. (laughs) Well, that series was on J.J. Abrams' work as a director. However... In keeping with our Star Trek Beyond theme for the final season of Commentary Trek Stars and looking at the people who are working on Star Trek Beyond, uh, we thought that it would be kind of interesting to look at J.J. Abrams through the lens of the job which he has on Star Trek Beyond, which is that of a producer. More specifically, a producer of a movie which he's not directing. Yes. So especially since we've already covered all the movies that he produced that he did direct, obviously, in our series on him as a director. Instead yes. of repeating that, we, we decided to go go with this. Because, you know, trailer starts up, you know, and it's like, from producer J.J. Abrams. And it's like... Well, I always, I, you know, just as a quick side note, I hate it when trailers do that. Because, like, they really have started scraping the bottom of the barrel sometimes. And it just, it drives... It, you know, I get from the producer of or from the studio that brought you, but like they're get they're so bad now. It's the, it's almost like from the caterers who worked on Twilight. I mean, from the studio who brought you, I think is is pretty terrible because it's like yeah, from the studio okay. who brought you. I think the first time I saw it was uh, Remember the Titans. I forget what the movie was, but it was it was one of their other sports movies, and it's like from the studio that brought you Remember the Titans, and I'm like. But none of the people who worked on Remember the Titans worked on this thing, so that means literally nothing. From the bank that mortgaged your house. That's exactly what it is, you know? But in the case of a producer, especially a producer like J.J. Abrams, who has his own production company, who makes, you know, a certain type of movie, I guess, or maybe not, I guess we'll find out. It is kind of interesting. And, you know... I guess the question is, should should people be excited? Because obviously J.J. Abrams is a name. You know, he's um, currently uh, the director of what is about mm-hmm. to become the highest grossing film of all time, right? Domestic. We don't know about worldwide. No, I he's think... we got world, a little bit to go worldwide. I think worldwide is well on its way, too. I was just looking at some number where it's like... like the. It's it's made like twice as much as Avatar is made in the same amount of time. Yeah, I uh, I actually have gotten a little bit of a kick out of uh, you know every so often going over to a box office mojo. Yeah, yeah. and it's like you look at the fourteen day you know <laughs> box office receipts and everything. It's like my goodness. But I mean, even um, the the question is longevity because even uh, uh, Jurassic World was beating Avatar at this point. Oh really? Oh, yeah, wow. it, it it was in terms of receipts, but Jurassic World sort of like just fit, you know the candle which burns brightest burns half as long. Mm-hmm. So the question is, will Force Awakens keep burning so brightly? Because it, both of Cameron's big wins, Titanic and Avatar, they were movies like they were released at this time when there was nothing. It was it was the graveyard. 
And they lasted. And that's why people kept going. Yeah. They lasted until March. I remember, like, I'll never forget this. Like, because I was, you know, working as a projectionist when Avatar came out, and you know, the the files for the the movies are encrypted. And, you know, when you get a movie, then you get a key which unlocks the movie for X amount of time. And usually it's like two weeks or something. And then if you're going to still be playing it, then they send you more keys to unlock them for longer periods of time. And for Avatar, the keys lasted until the end of March, which is insane. Like, no one ever does that. And I'm like, wow, that's – wow, and then that rolled around, and sure enough, we actually needed new keys to extend it because we had the movie through the end of March. The The movie outlasted those super-duper long keys, which is crazy. So, yeah. Yes. But I think yes. that I think that Star Wars is going to do the same thing. I really do. Well, I mean, there's, you know, uh, I'll, I'll put it this way. I can understand Star Wars being around for a long time a lot more than I understood Avatar being around for a long time. Yeah, yeah. I saw Avatar once and walked out, and there wasn't any sort of, you know, path to acceptance or or <laughs> I've come to love the Force Awakens in its own right. Um, that didn't happen with Avatar. Saw it once, and I was like, eh, okay. I love Avatar, um, but my my opinion of it has definitely declined in the years since. Whereas Force Awakens, I still think is pretty great, but. I I, yeah. I think that regardless, I think Force Awakens is better than Avatar. I would have said that, you know, back in two thousand eight or whatever it was, two thousand eight, nine, nine, nine. I I don't know. I think it, it was, was. I think it was the same yeah. year as Star Trek. Yeah, Star Trek and Glorious was Bastards it? and Avatar. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Well, um, Abrams, he, he, you know, because of that, because he's obviously the the maker of of Star Wars Episode Seven, The Force Awakens. Of course, they're going to put his name all over the trailer for Star Trek Beyond, uh, which is attached, you know, to the front of many uh, prints of of Star Star Wars: The Force Awakens. But what does that mean? Because obviously, he was busy making Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens. That's why he didn't direct Star Trek Beyond. So we're going to look at that in this series. We're going to look and see what does it mean. Does it mean anything? I don't know. We'll find out. And to get this ball rolling, we are going to look at the first movie which he produced, which he didn't direct, which is The Pallbearer. The Pallbearer. The Pallbearer. And I do want to say that I, I have uh, a, a bit of a, a grudge with this because when we first discussed it, I thought it was possibly a biopic about The Undertaker's manager from the WWF, mm-hmm. but it wasn't. And I was very upset about that. So I may have come in with a little chip on my shoulder. Would would David Schwimmer have been a good casting choice to, to play that Paul Bearer? Uh, oh, no, no, no. He, uh, But he could have been like the, the guy who discovered. I could have, no, he couldn't play McMahon because he didn't have the muscle for it. But I could see him playing like some sort of guy who discovered the act and like brought him to McMahon or something like that. That would be an interesting take. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, unfortunately, that's not what it is. It's it's a movie which was produced by Jeffrey Abrams. This is how far back we're going. He doesn't even go by J.J. yet. And it's mm. pre-Bad Robot. Bad Robot does not come into existence for another five years after this. It's 1996. Um, it is written by Matt Reeves and Jason Kadams and directed by Reeves. Now, Matt Reeves 
is probably best known to people as the director of Cloverfield, another movie which we're going to be looking at in this series. But uh, prior to that, but after this, after this, prior to, to Cloverfield, in between the two, he and Abrams co-created the show Felicity. So there's that. Um, Reeves has also gone on to direct uh, Let Me In, um, which is... Uh, which was the adaptation of the the Let the Right One In? Yes, yes, that yes. movie. But it, his adaptation was pretty fantastic. I, I, I got to admit, I really liked it. I've never seen either one. I want to. Oh, the yeah, the the American adaptation is one of the few times where, like, you know, it's it's really good. Okay. You should see it. All right. And he also did uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, the newest one. Was it, was that Dawn? Yeah, because it was Rise and then Dawn. Dawn and yes, now because the next one is War. War, yeah, which he's also yeah. doing. Which he's also yes. Doing. Yeah. And Dawn was really good, too. So Yeah, it was. So, so that's Matt Reeves. Now, Jason Kadams, he is a guy who we've talked about on this show before uh, in regards to Roswell. You know, at this point in time, all he had done was written a few episodes of My So-Called Life. But he would go on to create a number of shows or develop a number of shows uh, which were very successful and, and popular and considered to be quite good. And those shows include Roswell, uh, Friday Night Lights, which is one of my all-time favorite shows, I've I've never seen the show, but I've heard nothing but rave reviews of it. Yeah, if you're looking for something to watch, yeah, it's on Netflix. Just watch the first episode; you'll be hooked. Okay. You'll be hooked. But yeah. Oh, all right. Well, I'll <laughs> check that out then. Yeah, and uh, it it was he also did um, Parenthood, the newest version of Parenthood, and about a boy. And fun fact: uh, Friday Night Lights. Parenthood and About a Boy, the television shows, all take place in the same continuity, right? So now they do. Yes, they do. They do, because um, there there's a, a character from Parenthood who is in the first episode of About a Boy, but then About a Boy also has webisodes, and one of the characters from Friday Night Lights is in one of the About a Boy webisodes okay but now here's my question i've always had this question okay each of those shows is adapted from a movie right so yes. does so does that mean that those three movies take place in the same continuity Ooh, oh um but but here hang on you know hang what? on hang on it gets okay. it gets okay. even, I'm listening. It gets even listening. more complicated okay because two of those friday night lights and about a boy are based on books so, do those take place in the same continuity? And keep Oof. in mind, keep in mind that one of those books is nonfiction. So, does that mean that about a boy takes place in our reality? I don't know what's real anymore. <laughs> I, I've given up. Uh, you know what? I'm just I'm going to take the standard uh, Lucasfilm uh, response to that and say, so long as there is nothing to contradict. Yes. Therefore, we are all living in about a boy continuity? I think so, yeah. yeah. Well, okay. All, all right. right. There's nothing to contradict that, so yes. Okay, cool. Yes. It's a documentary. Yeah. 
regardless of any of that, I don't think the pallbearer takes place in any of those continuities. I certainly hope not. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, now, there there are obviously connections to all these people, but it's kind of interesting that, you know, all of these guys who would, be, who would go on to have very successful careers in TV and movies w- would get their start making this little movie, which a lot of people haven't seen, most likely. Uh, it yeah. came, came out in 1996, and uh, yeah, would you want to give a little synopsis of it? Yes. Uh, David Schwimmer plays a, uh, a late bloomer who's still living with his mother, who gets called up one day to deliver the eulogy and be pallbearer for a person from high school that has killed themselves that uh, he has no memory of. And along the way, he runs across Gwyneth Paltrow, who plays Julie, who was his high school crush that he's, I guess, by default still in love with. Yes, and basically he can't get out of the lie. He starts off feeling sort of bad for um, for for the mom of this kid who, who died. Yeah, and that's a plot line that goes in a strange way. Right, and basically the, the, the big conflict in the movie comes from the fact that he ends up uh, sleeping with the mom and at the same time, you know, maintaining his crush for Gwyneth Paltrow. So it's like a weird I, love triangle sort of thing. I would say stalking, actually. Okay, stalking. Because he, he parks a uh, street away from her record store and with binoculars monitors her on what appears to be at least uh, every couple of days sort of basis. Yeah. Um, and then in between, he goes and has various booty calls with the mother of the guy he doesn't remember. Yeah, I guess that would be stalking. Yeah. It's not what one should do if one is well adjusted. <laughs> I'll just put it that way. You're probably right. Yes, yes, you're probably right. So what did you, what did you think about this thing? Uh, <laughs> it's It's awful. It is. Usually I couch things and I try to say, state it politically. I fell asleep three times trying to watch this. It's an hour and 37 minutes. I was not particularly tired. I started watching it like 530. I was like, all right, hon, I want to go watch this movie. I fell asleep within 15 minutes. Okay. This movie doesn't know whether it wants to be a comedy, whether it wants to be a riff on The Graduate, whether it wants to be uh, like a, like a, a romantic um, drama um, th- it doesn't know what it wants to be. It's all over the board. And on top of all of that, it, it the, the main character is not sympathetic at all. He is not sympathetic, and his friends are even less sympathetic. Michael Rappaport phones in somebody that should not just not be anybody's friend. He should be on their hit list. And the woman who plays his wife... I'm sh- I mean, she did a fine job because if I was supposed to hate her by the end of the movie, hey, mission accomplished. Which you were. Like, She's supposed yeah. to be unlikable, right? But it is. It it's basically like a really bad sitcom pilot gone amok. I, I you know that's all I can say about it. Um. Yeah. Well, I mean, just to give you sort of an idea of uh, whether or not we're on the same page, for anyone who's just listened to what John has to say. I'm going to read you, word for word, the notes which I have jotted down for this. Oh, boy. It's a mess. 
doesn't know what it is trying to be. Obviously heavily influenced by The Graduate, but without any of that movie's <laughs> admirable traits. Yes. <laughs> Tonal, yes. Tonally disastrous. <laughs> so... <laughs> I feel like we, I mean, seriously, we made a World Series illusion a couple of episodes ago. I feel like we're firing on all cylinders right here. Yeah. You and me, we are finally right there. We're in the zone, man. Yeah. Right alongside. Yeah. Excellent. It, it is, it is kind of crazy. I mean, it really, I mean, like going into it, I guess I just assumed from like the box art, you know, like, oh, this is going to be sort of a romantic comedy, you know, or whatever. Yeah. I, I was kind of guessing that it would have sort of like a Woody Allen vibe, but it doesn't. It's it's almost as if they were trying to do like The Graduate, but seriously, like not yeah, as a yeah. comedy, but it lacks all of the substance and all of the the, the heavy sort of like drama and, 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 and weight that that The Graduate has sort of or, in or spite of being charm. a comedy yeah and even the or, because i mean honestly that's you know that's dustin hoffman in his prime uh, even buck henry in the graduate is fantastic like he, he has he's barely there but he's great well buck like, henry's great in everything well that's true i you know uh, si- real real quick sidetrack i had the the pleasure of seeing him on broadway one time oh really he's just as fantastic live he really is. Oh, yeah, he's great and his writing is great too i mean yeah obviously just, the graduate but have you seen to die for no, I haven't seen that. Oh, you gotta see okay. it. And, and he's in that too. He plays a, a school teacher in that. Just a little cameo kind of thing. But okay, he's in a few I, I will scenes. add that. I will add that to the list. Directed by Gus Van Sant, starring um, oh. Nicole Kidman in uh, one of her. I don't. Know, I think one of her best roles. And uh, yeah, first R-rated movie I ever snuck into. By the way. So, oh, very yeah. cool. Yeah, Mine yeah. was Die Hard, but hey. Oh, you, you beat yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay. Uh, yeah, like, I would love to, like, find anything to glean positive from this. The one thing that I can say is that what it serves as is a time capsule reminder that there was a time when Gwyneth Paltrow did not command the respect that she mysteriously does now. Because this is before Shakespeare in Love. And post-Shakespeare in Love, it was like Gwyneth Paltrow, comma, actress. This is back when she was still like on that sort of shaky romantic comedy, Jennifer Aniston-y sort of ground. So I, I think that it's a, it's an historical curio for that reason. Let, let me just read to you the last sentence that I have written down here. Um, interesting to see a movie from that era, cast especially. There you go. <laughs> There you go. But, I mean, it's true. Okay, because, like, I don't know. There's a thing about this time period where it's, like, I find it particularly fascinating because this is, like, when I was starting to get super hardcore into movies. 1996 Mm -hmm. was, like, the first summer where I was, like, I'm going to see everything. Like, every single movie that comes out. And I wasn't, well, for one thing, I wasn't 17 yet, so I couldn't get into all the R-rated movies, especially the art house ones, because the theater that played the art house movies would uh, card people, whereas the theater that played the blockbusters would not card people. So I could get into all the yeah. R-rated blockbusters, but I couldn't get into something, well, Paul Bearer, I think, was rated PG-13. But because of that, there's a lot of smaller movies like this, which are from that er- era, which I am not aware of. Whereas, you know, even like... 
four years later, three years later, I'm aware of like everything. I've probably seen everything. But here I've seen like a, a good chunk. But there's some like this where it's like, wait a minute. Okay, this is like it's starring David Schwimmer and Gwyneth Paltrow and all these people, you know, Tony Collette and Michael Vartan, um, yeah. who, who Abrams would work with on uh, Alias, you know, yeah, as just a little right. baby. And uh, Greg Grunberg shows up, of course, you know. Well, I I think it's a law. I don't know. <laughs> but um, because of that, it's like it's like this weird, I'm not going to say gem, but this weird uh, mineral, uh, which is in the ground, <laughs> <laughs> which I didn't know existed, like you know. And it's like, yeah. oh, look, there's a, th- th- I, I didn't know that that thing was there. And it just sort of like adds to the tapestry of the movie landscape of that time period or whatever. You, you yeah. know what I mean? And yeah. and and like seeing, you know, hearing like, uh, well, seeing that it's a Miramax production starring David Schwimmer and Gwyneth Paltrow and and a lot of these other people who would go on to become bigger stars, if not big stars, but certainly bigger stars. And then you hear things like you know Kevin Smith talk about. How like right around the time that this movie came out, he was making Chasing Amy at Miramax, and Miramax was trying to, he as he describes it at that point, Miramax was really interesting interested in making stars. They wanted they yep. they, they found talent and they were making movies like The Pallbearer as vehicles for people like David Schwimmer and Gwyneth Paltrow, in the hopes of making them big and turning them into box office gold. And like he talks about how with Chasing Amy, um, the Miramax was going to give them a, a couple million dollars if he had cast David Schwimmer, John Stewart, and Drew Barrymore. Oh, my. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot. You Anybody that's listened to me chatter with you knows that if Kevin Smith ever runs across me, he's probably going to punch me in the face. <laughs> Uh, but no, he won't because uh, he's cool like that. Yeah, it's probably too stoned. He'd probably swing and miss. <laughs> but the uh, like the first three movies he did were great. I can't tell you how happy I am that he did not cast those people in Chasing Amy because yeah. I remember seeing that movie. I haven't seen it since because that's one of those ones where I loved it so much that I'm like, I don't want to go back and revisit it. In case I don't like, like I want to preserve the memory. Interesting, basically, Interesting. yeah. Like saving Private Ryan's like that. Like I don't want to experience that beginning again if it's not on a big screen because I don't want to lose what it felt like. You know, I don't want to have anything to compare it to. Yeah, yeah. Um, and chasing Amy, like, my goodness, how different is that movie if he had cast those people? Like, that is fascinating to me. The funny, wow. thing, the funny thing is, like Schwimmer and Barrymore were already well on their way to becoming stars. John Stewart did end up in some Miramax movies, like The Faculty and stuff, but he obviously but, became huge doing something else. Yeah, but The Faculty was Dimension, wasn't it? Because that was well, a Miramax yeah, subsidiary. Yeah, well, basically, yeah. It, it was all the same. Like Bob Weinstein ran Dimension, and Harvey ran Miramax, but basically. It was just sort of like a brand offshoot, kind of like Marvel or whatever, you know. Right. Okay. Um, but you know, it, it, the the three people who did end up in in chasing Amy, well, Joey Lauren Adams, unfortunately and inexplicably, has not become a star, which is 
I, I can't, I don't understand how that happens. But the other two are Jason Lee and Ben Affleck, who yes. had come out of nowhere. And those two people, who obviously were not on, you know, Weinstein's radar at all, are huge stars now. Batman, you're talking about Batman and uh, yeah. Earl, right? I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, well, but uh, wasn't, okay, I, I know we've gone down the chasing Amy rabbit hole here, but which is fine. Is it like Ben Affleck, Mallrats versus chasing Amy? I seem to recall Affleck calling it out that you can tell a difference in him because Michael Bay had discovered him and had cast him for Armageddon. It was starting to like get him in shape. Like he he looks different between those two movies. It, it, it wasn't until after Chasing Amy, I think. I think maybe that was between okay. Chasing Amy and Dogma because I know like in Chasing Amy, he talks about how like. He he had to wear his own clothes. He was living on on Kevin Smith's couch and everything. But then, like before Chasing Amy came out, I think they had already started shooting Armageddon because, so, like, so he was living on Kevin Smith's couch. Yeah, I would have figured it would have been Matt Damon's. Okay, no, well, while they were shooting the movie, and anyway. Oh, all right. Yeah, yeah, but I'm yeah. sure Matt Damon. You know, this was pre. You know, I mean, like the. I mean, we're getting into like the history of Miramax now from that right. era, which is fascinating and and you know relevant to yeah. the Paul Bear and I'm sure more interesting. But like, Goodwill Hunting would have never been made if it weren't for Chasing Amy because Miramax was getting ready, or I'm sorry, it was set up at, at Sony, and Sony was getting ready to dump it because they wanted to shoot it in Toronto, and Damon and Affleck were violently opposed to that, and basically Sony said like you have like a week to find someone else to buy the script from you or else we're shoot from us or else we're shooting it in Toronto. And he was like, this is while they were shooting chasing Amy and Affleck wow. was like all depressed. And Kevin Smith is like, what's going on? And Affleck told him and Smith was like, well, give me the script. I'll read it. If I like it, I'll give it to Harvey Weinstein. And he did. And Smith is like, Oh my God, this is amazing. Handed it to Weinstein and Weinstein bought it on the spot and the rest is history. That's why Kevin Smith is wow. that's why Kevin Smith is an executive producer on Goodwill Hunting. Because he's the guy who, right. who got it fine. in the I, Fine. I <laughs> I'll say another good thing about Kevin Smith then. And actually, uh, they offered it to Kevin Smith to direct and he turned it down because he didn't think he was capable. I would say that that's another positive thing to say about <laughs> Kevin Smith is he knows his limits. And Good it was directed him. by Gus Van Sant, who directed To Die For, which was written by Buck Henry, which was who wrote The Graduate, which was ripped off by, by these guys to make Paul Bear. Anyway. <laughs> so we're in the Paul Bearer cinematic commu- uh, continuity now, right? Yeah, I think so. All right. I think so. There you go. All right. So <laughs> back to Paul Bearer. Yeah. I mean,. It, it is kind of interesting to see these things and set up in like Gwyneth Paltrow, like you're saying, like this is the same year that she made um, Hard Eight, Sydney, Paul Thomas Anderson's first movie. Oh my gosh, that's right. And you that's can, right. To- even though it's like a completely different role and a completely different movie, like I'm watching it and I'm like, this, you see things that she's doing. There's like shots and movements and, you know, like little sort of like actor ticks that she has which you can see in both movies, and it's like, wow. You know, and you don't see it later on in her career. You don't see it in Iron Man, you know, or anything like that. 
And I think yeah. that that's, that's really interesting and really cool. And, uh, yeah, I, stuff like that I find fascinating about this movie. Everything else, not so much. I'm, yeah, I, I mean, the, the one thing is, like, you know, Barbara Hershey, I think, tried really hard to sort of carry this one. Mm-hmm. Like, I very much get the feeling that this was, when they brought her on, it was like, okay, this can be a vehicle to breathe some new life in your career. And maybe, like, the, you know, a, a way to sell you is like, a you know, a reinvigorated Oscar contender sort of actress. Like, that's just the vibe I got through the entire thing. So I think she actually tried. Like, I, I think that she was just a victim of, I mean, honestly, the script. Yeah, but I I think she did the best that she could with what was there. Um, in so far as like she was actually sympathetic, uh, although like I don't know, I don't know whether she was meaning to play it a little bit unstable to begin with. I mean, I you know I guess so considering the circumstances and everything. Yeah, but uh, like I, I you know she she's one of those performances where it's like it's not great, it's not stellar. But you can tell that if she'd had just a little more material to work with, mm-hmm. she could have turned it into something. So, I'll, you know, I'll give that positive note to it. Yeah, I mean, the performances, I don't think any of the performances are tremendously bad. Um, I, I just think that uh, the script is terrible. You know, I mean, that's the thing. And and yeah. it, it's strange because, like, I I saw, you know, I mean, I, I, I am a fan of, of Matthew Reeves based on his other stuff. And because of that, I was like excited to watch this movie. And then when I saw that he co-wrote it with Kadams, I'm like, oh, yeah. Because, I mean, Roswell is, is great. Parenthood is great. Friday Night Lights, though, is like one of the best shows I've ever seen. You know, the writing on it in particular is some of the best writing I've ever seen. So if you say Jason Kadams wrote a movie, I'm like, I'm there. Let's watch this, you know? But but wouldn't that be indicative? I mean, especially considering this sort of feels like a uh, like a, a, a sitcom plot gone monstrously wrong. Like, is it possible that, like, that's just an indication that his, his best medium in which to work is television? Yeah, and that could and be. he just isn't suited to this sort of environment, which is not a knock. Everybody's got their strengths. Yeah, I mean, that could so, be. That could be, for yeah. sure. Yeah. I don't know. Okay, now... There was one other uh, collaborator on this movie who has worked in Star Trek, and he worked in Star Trek on a minor role, but it was at the beginning of his career, and he's since blown up to become a huge leader in his field, and that's the cinematographer Robert Ellswit, uh, who also shot Heart 8, by the way. So that was sort of another layer to that Gwyneth Paltrow thing. Because oh, really? it was like lit the same way and everything from the same time period. But... Back in the day, when he was getting started off in, in this industry, he was a, um, I guess, he worked in the camera department, you know, as like a camera operator and stuff like that for uh, visual effects companies. Uh, he had worked on um, Empire and Jedi for ILM, but back before that, he worked for um, Apogee, the company that uh, did visual effects for... Star Trek the motion picture or one of the companies that did visual effects for Star Trek the motion picture and he worked on on that movie um that was like one of his first jobs in the industry so you know and and I always you know I get a kick when I'm watching well any old movie especially like any 
old like big budget blockbuster from like the 80s or whatever and you look in the, those credits and buried deep you'll find names like david fincher or whatever doing like matte yeah. paintings on return of right. the jedi you know that kind of thing and robert elswood is one of those names buried in the credits for star trek the motion picture and um he you know has been working as a cinematographer for years and years and years this was i guess one of his very early movies all things considered and uh he has since gone on to do many many awesome movies including all of paul thomas anderson's early movies um including hard eight and boogie nights and magnolia i mean some of the best movies ever made he's worked yeah. with with george clooney a whole bunch um at, at both as as clooney's cinematographer personally but also on like george clooney productions um and uh he was nominated for Clooney's Good Night and Good Luck which is a fantastic movie by the way and a fantastic Not... looking movie. Well and it was black and white, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It looks oh, Okay, see because that's yeah, okay. I I do have to see that, but a cinematographer who can work in black and white nowadays is yeah, really you know, a rarity. It was so good. And fun fact, they uh printed that movie on black and white film which is a a, a rarity these well it's non-existent these days but it was a rarity back in 2006 or 2005 or whatever it was oh wow so they actually printed it on black and white wow that's yeah. That, yeah. so they never oh wow so that's really cool yeah like it must like, look fantastic yeah like man who wasn't there was printed on color film even though it was black and white and they were like don't if you get multiple prints, don't mix up the reels because the tinting might be off a little bit. You know, we've matched them so that they all have, like, the same tint. But with this, it's, like, black and white. But it came with its own set of problems because it's, like, this stuff generate or it absorbs a lot of heat. So if you're yeah. not careful, you will burn this print. You will just burn it. So, you know, you had to be really careful so with it. But the contrast and everything was just amazing on it. Yeah. Can't wait to see it then. Yeah. And um, he uh, also won an Oscar. He was nominated for that. He won for for Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood, which is obviously. He, oh, oh, yeah. Okay. That movie, it, that movie looks fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And yes, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, if, without Daniel Day-Lewis, that movie isn't what it is. But the movie looks beautiful. Yeah, he's... Wow, that does make that very interesting that he shot this. Yeah, That's yeah. That's really interesting. And we're going to see some of his work uh, coming up later on in this series because he also photographed the last two Mission Impossible movies. So we'll get to see that that coming up in a few weeks, which is exciting. Cool. He's He's one of my favorites, I have to say. All right, so to wrap this up... Um, what do we do you, uh looking at it sort of through the JJ J. Abrams perspective um i know it's hard since this is the first one you know to see but i think that we can see certain abrams trademarks more than anything sort of like in the people who he's working with like yeah. he's not directly involved i'm assuming with any of this stuff but at the same time i think he was the biggest name at the time because he had written a lot of movies on his own like regarding henry and stuff like that so he had an end to the industry considering the fact that he's worked with a lot of these people numerous times i'm guessing that he's friends with them 
and they wanted to make this movie, and he helped them. That's my guess as to how this all went down. But but we are starting to see relationships form with Matt Reeves, Michael Vartan, and Robert Ellswit, and, uh, you know, Greg Grunberg is just there, of course, because he's Greg Grunberg, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's what he does. He's his Ben Affleck. Exactly, yeah. I love it. On the commentary for Mission Impossible 3, <laughs> they talk about, it's like him, it's Abrams and, and uh, Tom Cruise, and they talk about the party in the opening scene and yeah. the the house that they used it was a set but it was designed to look like jj abrams's house and um kind of creepy yeah yeah but they're like yeah this is like his house and, and and tom cruise is like yeah and there's greg grunberg you know which if you go to jj abrams house greg grunberg will be standing in his living room <laughs> <laughs> so it's just like jj abrams's house <laughs> That's awesome. Yep. Yep. That's awesome. All right. Any any uh, final thoughts on the Paul Bearer? Save yourself. Don't <laughs> don't watch it. Yeah, I would say any of these movies which we've talked about <laughs> which aren't the Paul Bearer, watch any of those instead. Watch The Graduate. If yes. You... Yeah, watch There Will Be Blood. <laughs> watch Chasing Amy. Yeah. Any of those yeah. things to die for. Any of those. All there good choices. Go. All better choices than the pallbearer. Well, it's been fun talking about the pallbearer today, but that's not all we're talking about on Trek FM this week. So here's a look at some of the other shows you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, the orb. He requests, you know, a Bajoran officer to serve with him yeah. on purpose. You know, he understands you make this their own. We can't I'm glad just... he did it on purpose. I could see him like accidentally requesting a Victorian officer. <laughs> oh man, I, I checked the wrong box on the form. Damn. <laughs> the ready room. Actually, I think at this point, Vulcan Love Slave was probably just a short story, right? It hadn't been turned into a full. <laughs> That's blown right. It's not a full novel. blown novel at that point. Yeah, it's yeah. just fanfic. It's just fanfic. Yeah, it's just fanfic. <laughs> right. Just on the internet, people started writing after first contact there in Montana. To the journey. It's a very much the genesis of Seven of Nine. Genesis. Genesis. Genesis allowed us not. Sorry. Commentary, Trek Stars. The fact that this came out right in between Oceans 11 and Oceans 12, where you've got filmmakers who are at the very tip-top of their game. Oh boy, here comes the Soderbergh speech, everybody. Strap yourselves in, we're going to Soderbergh. The 602 Club. But I mean, we we talk about the ending and we're sort of dancing around it here. I, I have to know, because when this book first came out, and every time I look at the cover, I'm reminded of this. This is the first time I can consciously remember a piece of artwork having to do with the story spoiling the ending for me. Literary Treks. Just so many great lessons here about, look, life is not safe. But it's good. Oh, absolutely. If you can get through it, you know, and bind together with those people around you and go through it together. That's how you make it, is together. Women at Warp. She's the communications officer first. She can be Spock's girlfriend second. So how do you think people would respond if you said 
describe who Carol Marcus is after seeing this movie. Uh, she looks nice in her bra. Meta tricks. I looked it up and ornare is the Latin word for to adorn. That's fascinating. So I looked up breca and it turns out the same spelling, B-R-E-K-K-A, is Old Norse for slope or hillside. And that, listeners, is something you will only get right here on Metatrex. Better living through etymology. <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. Uh, Another show which isn't mentioned there, which uh, we should probably mention because, hey, it just started and, hey, we we're on five episodes this past week is uh, from there to here where uh, we're doing a 50th anniversary rewatch of all 729 episodes of Star Trek uh, as a network. It's coming out every day. We're doing two episodes a day. Each episode is only like each show is only like 15 minutes long. Uh, Yeah. And, um, we are are just starting with Enterprise and working our way through the timeline all the way up, and then we'll end with Star Trek Beyond on December 31st. And uh, to get the ball rolling, uh, John and I recorded the first five episodes, all of which are out now. We've got more episodes coming out every day with new hosts, you know, uh, yeah. for each block. That, and, that, and that's the coolest part, is that it, we're mixing it up. Like, it, yes, we me and Mike started, but like there's going to be a mix of different hosts, like with, with their takes on everything. So it's, I'm looking forward to the series just because it's going to be a lot of fun just to hear everybody's uh, different uh, approach to everything. You know, like we're, we're all playing in the, in the same sandbox now. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right now, uh, the, the block, which is currently going on today's episode uh, features will win from, Warp 5 and Brandon Matala, who's new to the network, but uh, you'll be hearing a lot more of him in the future. And uh, yeah, check it out. It's called From There to Here, and you'll find it right here on Trek FM. All right. If you want to help us out uh, keeping this network running, you can buy some of our stuff. If you go to trek.fm slash store, that'll take you to our Redbubble store page where you can buy... Uh, T-shirts and sweatshirts and stickers and notebooks and everything with uh, various uh, Trek FM artwork on it. And, uh, yeah, that that helps us keep this thing running. So check that out. And it's very well-designed stuff. And the sweatshirts are very comfortable. They are. They really are. I'm wearing uh, my my Maroon Monster (laughs) shirt right now. (laughs) It looks great. The, The artwork for these things is just out of the park. It's great. Yep, yep. Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trek.fm. If you want to contact us, 
You can fill out the form on trek.fm slash contact, or you can leave us a voicemail on speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. You can find the network on Twitter at trek.fm, or you can find the network on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Uh, you can also find the Babel Conference on Facebook. That's our user uh, forum, our listener forum. I always say user. It's listeners, right? Whatever. Yes, I guess listeners. Listeners are using our oh, whatever. It's our listener forum. Uh, just type the Babel Conference into the search field on Facebook. That's B A B E L, or go to our website at trek.fm and click the discussion tab on the menu bar. All right. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps us bring commentary, Trek Stars, and all of our shows to you each week. And our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have the time for. John, what book do you have for us this week? Well, keeping uh, with the theme of the pallbearer, we have Mortuary Confidential, Undertakers Spill the Dirt, Mm. uh, written by Kenneth McKenzie and Todd Hera, narrated by Susan Larkin and Alan Robertson. In this macabre and moving compilation, funeral directors across the country share their most embarrassing, jaw-dropping, irreverent, and deeply poignant stories about life at death's door. Discover what scares them and what moves them to tears. Learn about rookie mistakes and why death sometimes calls for duct tape. Enjoy tales of the dearly departed spending eternity naked from the waist down and getting bottled and corked in a wine bottle. Yeah, you know, I I have, uh, I think there have been a number of people in my family who have been morticians, most notably, mainly because of his name, my uncle Maury, Maury the Mortician. Um, That works. And I never never met him, unfortunately, because he was long gone by by the time that I was born. But, uh, you know, there's, there's a history of that in my family. I don't know, everyone, my mom, she makes a living, you know, performing music at at funerals it's uh, she i i've been the strange thing being that it's upbeat music (laughs) it's whatever they want whatever they want (laughs) usually it's not usually it's like amazing grace and all that stuff but you know whatever whatever they want within reason you know but uh yeah i'm fascinated by morticians uh yeah i you know i i would have to say that um you have to have a pretty good sense of humor to work as a mortician. I yeah. Believe. Yeah. Like you would really have to be able to, I mean, think about what you're doing every day. You, you know, I, you know, actually I think I am going to download this and listen to it <laughs> because I got to hear some of these stories. All right. Well, as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audio book of your choice, including this one, along with a 30 day trial to see just how great audible is. Just go to audibletrial.com slash Trek FM and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trek.fm, and we thank Audible for supporting Commentary, Trek Stars, and the network. I just finished a book on Audible that was recommended to me by some other people here on the network. Yeah. It's called uh, Weapon of a Jedi. They steered you right, Mike. Nope. I'm, I'm, <laughs> they steered you right, Mike. It's not a good book. I don't know what you want me to say. It's not a good book. I want you to say it is a good book. Why would I say that? That's what I want you to say. Why would I say that? But I also want you to be honest. So, okay. okay. You're allowed not to like it, Mike. Thanks. It's okay. Thanks. It's not good. It's better than the (laughs) pallbearer, though. So, (laughs) (laughs) Setting the bar kind of low there, Mike. (laughs) 
<laughs> you kind of have to. All right. Um, well, <laughs> that's it for the pallbearer. That's it for this week. We will be back next week with the second movie that J.J. Abrams produced that he didn't direct. Actually, the second movie that he produced, period. The Suburbans. 